Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, the most popular podcast in eternity. Today we are proud to welcome Mother Natalia. How you doing, Mother Natalia? Hey, Clark. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. I, I don't think we've talked in like, how many years ago were you a missionary at Simple House? Oh, gosh. Um, I started in 2012 and then I went through through i was there for like a year and a half but then i also came back to help with a spring break trip at one point in when when y'all were short on missionaries and you needed someone who knew simple house to help lead it and that would have been 2015 maybe so eight years something like that so yeah so we probably haven't actually i mean we've exchanged emails in the last eight years but Uh we probably haven't talked really in the last eight years no, so it's, you it's look exactly you. the same. Wow. Like, actually. <laughs> I've got actually gray hairs on my sideburns and stuff now. Oh. I didn't have when you were here. Well, but, um, Amish country internet doesn't have good enough <laughs> resolution on the video for me to, to see the gray hairs or the extra wrinkles or whatever. So, Oh, that's great. I want to. <laughs> all right. So I know that. I you look know. very different. <laughs> right, right. Okay. And I think that some of our listeners know who you are, but I think there's a good chunk that also don't. So I want to like okay. introduce you and talk about how you're coming from Amis country. Uh, so tell us where you are right now and who you are. And then let's also talk about like what you were doing before you came to Simple House and kind of get this conversation going. Sure. So I am a, a Stavrafor nun, which means I'm life professed. Uh, Stavrofor is the Greek word meaning cross bearer, um, but that's not super important. So I'm a Stavrofor nun, a life professed nun at Christ the Bridegroom Monastery, which is a Byzantine Catholic monastery in northeastern Ohio, um, right in the middle of Amish country. And so all our neighbors are Amish. It's really great, super quiet, terrible internet though. And then um, Simple House prepared me for that. Uh, and then <laughs> I. Um, I've been here for, um, just over eight years. Like it was eight years, a couple weeks ago. So, uh, made my life profession in 2021. I, before entering the monastery, I was a teacher for a year, a high school teacher, uh, in the inner city, which Simple House also greatly prepared me for. And then I was, before that, I was a Simple House missionary for a year and a half. And before that, I was in college. I um, got my bachelor's degree in engineering physics from Colorado School of Mines. And then uh, before that, um, well, I moved over 20 times. So it's really difficult when people ask like where I'm from. Uh, went to I went to, I think, 12 or 13 schools in 12 years. Um, was your dad in the Navy? That's my yes. memory. Mm-hmm, right. 20 years. Yep. Yeah. And how long have you been Mother Natalia? Since 2021. So in the in the Eastern tradition, the nuns, when they make their life profession, go from sister to mother. So it's not like I'm the superior in the community. Um, it just means that I'm a life professed nun. So we have here in our community, we have six um, who go by mother and uh, one sister and then another entering in December. But the the eastern tradition this gets particularly confusing for people the eastern tradition is um paralleled in men's monasteries where life professed monks are called father 
So we just had a, a monk here on retreat who goes by father, but he's not a priest. Um, which actually the monks were called father before priests were. So it actually originated with the monks. Um, fun fact. So let's clear, let's talk about this for a second. So you are a um, Catholic, you know, not Orthodox, but actually Catholic, right? Correct. And, um, you know, in the Orthodox Church, there's a lot of national or like regional varieties, right? Like a Serbian Orthodox or Ukrainian mm-hmm. or whatever. Is is that true in, in the, um, what, what do in you the call Byzantine? your status? Byzantine, right? Yeah. Um, that is true. So there are, um, and for all of those, this, some, some Roman Catholics who have never heard of the, the Byzantine Reich get kind of freaked out by this. So, uh, I will start by saying, if you're at all stressed out by hearing this and you're a Roman Catholic, this is in your catechism. So go look in the catechism. Um, (laughs) there, it lists the different rites of the Catholic church. So there are multiple rites of the Catholic church within those rites, there are different churches. So we are the Byzantine rite. Within the Byzantine rite, there are Ruthenian Byzantines, which is what our community is. Um, There are Ukrainian Byzantines, Melkite Byzantines, so on and so forth. Uh, So um, there are, yeah, Coptic Catholics exist. Uh, They're much more rare than Coptic Orthodox, uh, but yeah. So one of the questions I have related to that, I've always, like, why aren't you American Byzantine? uh-huh um like why you know like these are regional like i don't know like it's not a dot and am i allowed to also say that you're in union with rome because i feel like one time i talked to you about this a long time ago and the word unit is a little bit of an insult or something or not the word unit is um usually used as an insult it's like a derogatory term um okay. but to say that one is in union with, with rome is correct that's not an insult that's it's not derogatory um, okay no, i was yeah. worried about that and then why these national like uh are you doing different liturgies based on the national affiliation and then why aren't there new national affiliations like an american or canadian Mm -hmm. uh, byzantine yeah that's that's a really great question i'm gonna answer it and hope that it's right so any listeners are welcome to um email clark and say like tell that none she's wrong that's totally fine we will publish a correction Uh, great if we need to go ahead that's great we have to do that sometimes on my podcast too (laughs) uh so so the reason that the the different churches are regional is because of the different traditions that developed in different regions um so we so all byzantines have the same liturgy that's why we're the same rites. we use the liturgies of saint john chrysostom saint basil the great but within the rite within the the ritual the liturgy there are different melodies from different regions and um different kind of smaller traditions of uh like different things that are blessed on certain feasts or or things like that and that's just because of like different regions had different ways of singing different like so so for instance we the Ruthenian Byzantines are one of the the rites or one of the churches that are not um we're not based out of a particular country but along a mountain range so the Carpathian Mountains are uh where the Ruthenian tradition comes from so we're basically the hillbilly Byzantines uh and our music sounds a lot more hillbilly than than the other the other traditions which i feel like i can say because i'm Ruthenian but well uh, i recently yeah. looked up Carpathian uh, folk music Oh, great. And it does sound like bluegrass. Uh-huh. 
one of my one of my favorite uh there's different versions of christ is risen and um my favorite version of it is i think it's the carpathian melody and it's like christ is risen from the dead trampling down death by death it's super fun uh yeah so (laughs) Um, so we're the hillbillies why do you think I, i i know i'm i didn't mean to go down this road but like like, you know, if you're a Mexican Catholic, right, like Roman Catholic, and then uh-huh. you like come to another city in America and you're going to a church with a lot of Mexicans that go there, you might have a better feast day for Our Lady of Guadalupe. Sure. You might have different songs that you're doing at that church, probably in Spanish, not English, you know. Um, why do you think in the Eastern, um, would you say, it's, is, is, is it correct to say the Eastern Church? Oh gosh, I get in trouble for this all the time. Yeah, don't even go there. All right, I don't want cans of worms. Whatever. Let's say Eastern Eastern churches would be correct because there are multiple churches within the Eastern rites. Um, yeah, just yeah. But all one Catholic church, assuming they're not Orthodox. Okay. All right. So all right. So all right. Let's let's go big picture real quick, just for anyone who's not following. All right. There are many apostolic churches. Some of them severed from Rome at some point. Correct. Right. But they still have apostolic descent. They still have the laying on of hands from the original mm-hmm. apostles. The ones that severed from Rome, we usually would call the Orthodox Church. I think the Coptic Church is another example of that. The Am Coptics right so are, far? they're Coptic Orthodox. Yeah. Coptic Orthodox, right. But either some people from those um, apostolic descent churches either didn't sever from Rome or rejoined afterwards. Yes. I think all but one rejoined. Rejoined. Okay. Mm-hmm. Came back to Rome. Like right? I think there's I think there's only one right, and I don't even remember which one it was. I think there's only one right that just never left. Okay. I mean, and apart they, from the Latin or the Roman. Yeah. And in coming back to Rome, they didn't become Roman Catholic. They just became that Eastern Church in union with Rome. Right. Because and the reason that we have the different rights, I mean, if you think about it, like <laughs> when Jesus told the apostles to go out to all the corners of the earth, um, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have email, they didn't, you know, so like, different traditions are developing in different regions, and different liturgies are developing in different regions. And which if you keep that in mind, it's actually pretty amazing how similar the different liturgies are. Um, the fact that there is, I think that's actually a great testament to to the the truth of our of our faith. But uh, so the different traditions developed in different regions, and then um, the the catholic church has like in her wisdom said well you keep your traditions and celebrate your traditions and then um we're all just like we have all of the same dogma right there's not um like we don't have different dogma because dogma are like that's the stuff you have to believe to be catholic (laughs) or profess to be catholic so so i all that you know great that's the big overview and it's feeding into my next question though like you know, within the Roman rite, you know, there are, you know, if you go to a mass in uh, Kenya, it's going to look very different than a mass in Washington, D.C., right? Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that in the Byzantine rite, you guys separated into these, like, sub uh, groups like Ruthenian or Ukrainian or whatever, as opposed to just kind of being more like, you know, we don't call the Mexican Catholic Church its own entity in a sense, you know? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we are, our liturgy would look the same. Um, all well, over if you the put world. your liturgy next to your, your Ukrainian liturgy, 
Would it? Um, it would. Be, it looks pretty identical. It's so, just like we're using different melodies, pretty much. So perhaps like an African Roman Catholic rite and a American Roman Catholic rite would have even more differences than these two rites than these two celebrations. You're Ukrainian. Oh, I'm guessing. Ukrainian. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. I wonder why it then separated like that. I don't know. I mean, I think it just was kind of like a matter of different. Um, yeah, I think it like comes down to the music more than anything, honestly. Okay. But, uh, and, but yeah, then within the Ruthenians, you guys have a patriarch? We do not. So we are a, um, we're a Suyuri's church. So we have um, a metropolitan, which is like an archbishop, basically. So we have different bishops, um, but we are under um, the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis, uh, like like you were saying, Clark, like that's what makes us in communion with Rome. Uh, so, but we have kind of a different chain of command coming down from Pope Francis. And so we have in the United States, we have four eparchies, uh, which is our word for a diocese. We have four eparchies. One of those Pittsburgh is the arch eparchy, which is like an archdiocese. And so there we have a metropolitan, um, or the archbishop of the country. And then the metropolitan for us would be basically like probably the fourth down from the Pope or something. Okay. Great. I feel like I might be nerding out on this a little bit too much, but <laughs> people um, are going to love it. People are going to be like, wait, there are other kinds of Catholics. It's going to be fascinating. Right. And people for some reason do like the technical stuff. Uh, I feel like the technical stuff sometimes gets in the way of religion, uh -huh. but um, so you have this interesting ministry, Mother Natalia, and I feel like the first time I saw it was I was been looking for this video because it somehow came across like <laughs> some text message or something that I like. I somehow found it a couple months ago and I've lost it again. Let's it be was, very clear at the start that whatever this ministry is that I have that you're about to talk about, like was not intended. <laughs> I sure. never planned to have. Well, this I do have a suspicion you were behind this video. Uh, oh, it was you guys having like a rap battle with another monastery, but it wasn't rap. <laughs> it was like you guys it were was an Adele about, parody. It was an Adele parody uh -huh, video about okay. Oreo cookies. About Oreo yeah. cookies. Yes, yes. <laughs> Where is that video? If people want to watch it. I don't know. Christopher West posted it at some point. Um, okay, good. If you I, search, I'm sure if you search on YouTube, Oreo Mercedarians Byzantine. Something like that. Adele. It'll come up. Yeah. Okay. Right. Good, good, good. <laughs> it's, right. Yeah. We have a we have a community. Um, there's a community of Mercedarians that are on the west side of Cleveland. Uh, this is everything I'm saying here is important. So and the Mercedarians wear white. We are the Byzantines who are both Eastern Catholic and live on the east side of Cleveland. And so we did a, a parody of Adele's Hello, but it was Hello from the Hello from the Eastern side and Hello from the Western side or something like that. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, right there, you know, I, you guys are not uh, cloistered, are you? Or Correct, you, we're I, not. You're not, okay. But right there, you kind of realize that your monastery had a certain freedom mm. to do uh, some media that you don't normally <laughs> associate with a group of uh, religious sisters. Yeah. Right? And then I remember seeing you appear on Matt Frad, and I was just like being like, hold it, I know that. I don't really watch Matt, Matt very regularly, but like I just saw your face pop up on YouTube. I was like, <laughs> I, like know I know her. her. <laughs> I know her. Like, what's this? You like, know? really well. <laughs> right? And then, yeah. And so, uh, and 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 then it was like, and then 
we had last year had a guy at Simple House and I was asking everyone in the room, like how you heard of Simple House, because that's important, important for recruiting. You know, like mm-hmm. you're hearing about us through the focus conference or something, then we need to take that seriously or whatever. And he goes, well, I heard about you through Mother Natalia. And I was like, what? Like, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I still think of you of your old name. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, and then I realized, oh, you know. Their Italian must be famous. <laughs> it's right? so weird. It's so weird. Like people come up to me and they get so excited and they're like, I've never met a celebrity. I had someone who has, um, he has like, he's been nominated for like four Grammys or something like that. Uh, this guy that I met and he was like, kind of stumbling over his words. And he's like, I'm sorry. I just, I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Well, it's one of these like celebrity things where like you're very authentic and you speak very much, you know, naturally. Right. So mm-hmm. people probably feel like they know you. Um, even if they yeah, haven't absolutely. met you. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's strange for you. Because, because they know, know a lot yeah. more about <laughs> you than you know about them. Right? Yeah. And well, then- I mean, Clark, you you worked with me and like, I mean, almost lived with like the missionaries for for a year and a half. And I'm a terrible actor. Like everything I'm thinking is always on my face. And so there, I can't like, I can't even try to be inauthentic. It's just how I live life. And it's terrible. (laughs) Right. I guess I think it'd be easier if you were an actor, you know, Yeah. I guess that's what we mean by being (laughs) terrible, but, oh, and then I got this email from you. Uh There's this movie coming out. All right. Yeah. I guess I, I feel like I might, maybe everyone knows this, but I feel like I'm jumping the gun almost, but like this movie's coming or it has come out. Right. Um, it's in film festivals. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us about that? Like what's going on? And also tell us about your podcast that kind of fills all this in. Sure. Um, so I guess the podcast came first, so I'll share that first. Um, my, my spiritual father, father, Michael Lachlan used to be on a podcast called Catholic stuff you should know. And then when, when he was in Colorado and when he moved to California, uh, he was like, well, I want to start a podcast of my own and I want it to be Byzantine. And, um, he was, yeah, he was doing all of this planning and he was getting really excited about it. And he's running everything by me, uh, because I'm his spiritual daughter. I have been for 12 years now, but then I also, um, am just like, I'm a friend and he and I have done work together and stuff and different ministry together. And so he's like running all these ideas by me. And I'm like, this sounds great. I hate giving talks. I hate public speaking. So it never crossed my mind that I would be on the podcast with him. I thought he's just using me as a sounding board. And then as he starts talking about the co-host he has in mind. And he's like, I think it'd be good to have like male, female, and she's going to be great and so on and so forth. And, um, and then he asked me and I'm pretty shocked. And that was a whole thing. And it's a different story, but eventually I said, yes, and then started this podcast with him. It's called What God Is Not, which is a reference to um, apophatic theology. So cataphatic theology is talking about what God is. Apophatic theology is talking about what he's not. So which is the greater emphasis in the East is to talk about what God is not in, as opposed to what he is. Um, so anyways, that's the podcast, What God Is Not. We record weekly. It's on all the platforms. The documentary... So the woman who, who filmed the documentary, her name is Elizabeth Mersai. She, I have no idea if that's how you say her last name. 
she her last film was nominated for an oscar so like she's amazing she's very talented every uh, the the work she's done up to this point has all been about afghanistan which uh she's she met her husband in afghanistan uh and she's a very devout catholic um and she was just like wanting to do something a documentary um that was happy because everything she's done so far has been like really tough stuff and she wanted to do one that was happy and when i asked her at some point in the filming process i was starting to get nervous that she and i didn't have the same idea of what this film would be which the film was totally obedience um she asked my superior at the time the superior said yes and so yes and um I feel very awkward being on any kind of film. And so that was a thing. And that was a process for a year and a half or so of filming. And, uh, but anyways, at some point in the filming process, I started to get nervous that like, I was like, I don't even know why she's doing this. I don't really understand. And I just asked her kind of what her idea was for the film and why she wanted to do it. And she said, you know, because it's a secular film and the, the film industry in general and the documentary industry in particular um, is very secular and often very anti-Christian. And um, so she said she's, she's in the Academy. Um, and so she said she goes like, she watches these films to vote on them. And as she's watching all of these films at different festivals, she's seen multiple films about nuns um, documentaries. And, and it's always the one like the films are always about the nun who um, realizes she's in a cult and then runs away with a priest. And then, you know, and it's like, she's like, they, they're putting these films out because for the shock value, um, but nobody is shocked by that these days, like in the exactly. secular world, it's exactly. what they expect. Yeah. And she was like, yeah. what you're living, actually living the life of monasticism um, and, and a devoted life to the Lord with joy that's what's going to shock people um and that's what she wanted to share with the world so yeah it's called natalia is the name of the film um and it is it's shown it's shown all over the world it got awards in in moscow awards in nashville um it was in switzerland and dc which is why i told you about it so that um the simple house missionaries in dc could go see it which it sounds like they did um, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, uh, yeah, our missionaries in D.C. went and they even brought people who we do ministry with or our ministry friends to the. That's and amazing. Yeah, They said it was amazing. They said the movie <laughs> was amazing. And they said that they that it was like a great experience and that they highly recommend it. You know, great. Yeah. Um, I still haven't seen it. Uh, I, don't, I wonder how that will ever happen. But, you know, if it's just going to festivals. but Well, for now, it's in festivals. I think av- eventually it'll be her hopes are that it will stream on like Netflix or something like that. So great. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I know. It's like the old like idea of like busting out of religion. It's like, man, that's a 50 year old idea. <laughs> yeah. See what I mean, it's like you are really old if you feel that constrained, you know, by religion. Yeah. Um, or in a very or in a very weird niche of, you know, culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thing that's been interesting, me, what do you call the superior of your monastery? The hegumena or the hegumena, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But, yeah. So you wouldn't say abbess? No. Or prioress. OK. 
No, I um, think those are I think those are Latin words, probably. Okay. I might have made that up. And it's interesting to me also just listening to you talk. It's now hitting me that the same priest you were working with before you came to Simple House, uh, who helped you, you know, you know, really I don't know if convert's the right word, but like at mm-hmm. least put you on fire for the faith, you know. Yeah. Is the same priest you're working with today, and he's the other person on the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, which then, is which is really, I mean, it's really beautiful. Like one of the things that uh, one of the the pieces of positive feedback that we get about our podcast most frequently um, is what a gift it is for people to see that relationship and to see that chaste affection between a celibate man and a celibate woman. Um, because he's been, yeah, directing me for twelve years. He knows my heart. He, we have a great, um, yeah, just a great dynamic. And so. I also know that when you were at Simple House, you were already in communication with the superior of the monastery you're at now. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. So that also strikes me that most people who discern religious life don't have that relationship, Mm -hmm. you know? And one of the things that I remember even from back when you were at Simple House was um, you know, you'd say, Hey, I talked to other so-and-so at Christ mm-hmm. bridegroom. And it seemed like that the attitude of spiritual direction there was towards freedom. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, that's, I, that's been one of the greatest gifts of discerning with this community. Like it's never been, it's our community has never been about numbers. Um, and it's very much mother Theodora was the superior at the time. Um, the Hegemona, and uh, it was so important to her to not push anybody, like, um, and to our our whole community, I think, has a really good understanding of if someone doesn't actually have a vocation, it's not going to be good for them to be here, and it's not going to be good for us. Uh, And so we don't want to try to, like, trick anyone (laughs) to be here, you know, and in fact, I've told certain women um, I'm now the vocation directress for our community. And like, I've had to tell women, um, I don't think God is calling you to be here. And, um, because yeah, it's just a disservice to them and to us, uh, if we, if we try to like force a vocation, but it's also, I mean, to the extent that after my observership, uh, a six week visit that I had here, which is kind of the last formal stage before, uh, before entering or before applying, I should say, after my observership at the end, I, I went to Mother Theodora and to Father Michael and I said, um, I don't think I have, I don't think I have a healthy and holy view of marriage. Like, I think if I entered monastic life at this point, it would be because I am afraid that I can't be holy in marriage. And um, we're all called to holiness, regardless of our vocation. And that means I can be holy in marriage and I need to know that so that I'm not like running away because I think that this is my only chance for holiness. Um, I didn't want to enter monastic life if I thought it was my only route to holiness. Like if it's my best route to holiness, the route that the Lord wants for me, that's fine. Um, but not if it was the only way I thought I could be holy. I think that's really dangerous. It's dangerous to discern anything because we're running away. We It needs to always be a running towards. Um, And so I told Mother Theodore at the end of my observership and Father Michael this and that. I was like, I I think I need to know that I can be holy in marriage before I can do this. Um, I don't know if that means dating someone or 
like in a healthy way because I had dated plenty of men in very unhealthy ways. Um, and she was like, great. Yeah. Take as much time as you need. Father Michael was like, okay, yeah, great. And, um, yeah, I think that's yeah. great. You know, <laughs> I think we both know that, you know, like if somebody's guilting someone into doing something, it's almost a cult like thing, not a healthy yeah. vocation. Right. But the way that they just feel so they're not, they don't feel like they're anti the world in mm -hmm. a sense, you know, of course the world can mean various things, you know, you're, in some ways you should be against the world but another way it's like this is also god's all gift you know yeah. mm -hmm. so and then i kind of wonder is there a connecting string there string there between um that attitude in your spiritual direction and also this new ministry you find yourself in because it seems like they're just saying yes you know i'm trying to imagine the the nuns sitting around saying hey we should do an adele parody and put it on the internet and wrap you know and challenge this other group of sisters you know what i mean like like what's the, even the chapter meeting look like where that goes down unless people feel free you know and and then everybody's like oh yeah like what's the problem with that let's do it you know yeah. um is that the way you feel about the community in general is that it is free like that um i think that we are there is a great freedom in our community i think it's really been fostered that freedom especially in the last year or two um as we've been because we've started, we've had a great freedom always to say yes. We're now starting to have a, a great freedom also to say no. Um, and that's something that's been very difficult for us in the past. Not no to vocations. Like, um, well, I think even with that, there's just like such a people pleasing um, attitude that I think a lot of Christians who are striving towards holiness um, are tempted to people please, right? Like we think that we can think that holiness means never saying no to anybody and uh and pushing ourselves um to the point of an unhealthy exhaustion uh in order to um to just not say no to people. And <laughs> uh so so we've started we've started giving a lot more no's uh which has been hard for people to receive, but uh, but I think really beautiful and really freeing and, um, and people have been very supportive of it, which is, which has been great. Actually. Yeah. Like this podcast was an exception to that. Cause we're not giving talks right now. And I was like, mother Cecilia, um, <laughs> a simple house has really been a very important part of my formation. And I would like to give them this gift. Um, and she was oh, like, thank Go for you. It. so yeah. Would you mind saying like, when you think of simple house or like anything that struck you about it or important memory or what? Do you have anything like that? What struck me the most about it, there are two things actually that I, I often talk about a simple house um, in different ways, like on my podcast and things like that, but also just in conversations with people here. And it's always a part of my, uh, my discernment story and things, vocation story, that's the word and things like that. But um, two of the things that I talk about most frequently, one is, um, the concept of friendship evangelization, I've always really appreciated because the Lord calls us to relationship. Always he calls us to relationship. Um, the, the Trinity is the model of relationship, right? Um, we have a God who is constantly in relationship uh, and with himself, with his children. And so to try to evangelize people simply by entering into relationship with the goal being 
sharing the love of the Lord in relationship, I think is really profound. And it's not just about this, like, maybe more instantaneous, like, gratification of putting money somewhere or giving some sort of material assistance, um, which are also important, but to, um, to really build real relationship with people um, was a great gift. And, and it's taught me to be more present to the people in my life. And, um, you know, we, we also, at one point during at simple house, we did a book study with, um, oh, what is their name? The Jerusalem, Jerusalem farms, Jerusalem farms. Um, we did a book study with them on the, the compendium of Catholic social doctrine. And my favorite part of that book study was, uh, the, talking about the complementarity of subsidiarity and solidarity. And that's something that I often still apply in my life and apply to community life as well. Um, And so that's great. But the other thing that I was so struck by at Simple House that I've um, that I'm continually edified by was the dedication to poverty. Um, Because there, there are a lot of organizations that have voluntary poverty amongst the individuals. Uh, but I, I hadn't experienced, and to this day, I'm not aware of, um, other, other ministries that have the same concept of corporate voluntary poverty. Um, and, and the, the radical reliance on the providence of God, I found to be very, very beautiful. Um, and, and it was just such a testament to the fact that the Lord does actually provide, you know, we would have meetings at simple house of like, guys, we did not get enough checks this month. And who's taking a cut on their $200 a month stipend, you know? (laughs) Um, and, and then we, you know, long meetings, long discussions of where we can cut costs. And then like, let's just take a break, run to the post office, you go to the post office and there is a check for $5,000 in the, you know, like, it's just, it's just really beautiful. I wanted to ask you about um, whether or not the concept or the practice of Pastinia was part of your monastery. Was it? Is it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, can you explain that? I mean, I know about it. Um, I'm glad you said yes, because I wanted to explore this idea. But mm-hmm. uh, Catherine Doherty is like the founder of Madonna House, and she was a little bit of a bridge between East and West in a way. And yes. she would just take Eastern concepts and publish them in books for Roman Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> and she has a very popular book called Pristinia, mm-hmm. uh that has affected me and affected Laura. But how about you talk about how it works within your monastery? Sure. So we actually have little retreat houses called Pustinias, um at our monastery. and we so pustinia for those who don't know is the slavic word for desert um and so the concept of pustinia first of all i would highly recommend catherine doherty's book that that you just mentioned clark um pustinia and it's uh yeah it's this concept of of going into the desert to be alone with the lord um because the desert is a place of encounter with the lord this is where the israelites encountered him this is where um especially moses and this is where uh, Jesus went for 40 days um, and to pray and to fast and also to encounter the devil. So that happens also on Pustinia. But we, uh, yeah, we've really embraced that concept in, in our community. And we have these Pustinias, these retreat houses. Right now we have three and which are, we're not actually booking Pustinias right now. Um, 
because of this time that we're trying to slow down. <laughs> but eventually we will start booking again because it's it's really a a really important part of our our um our ministry here at our monastery. But we actually each nun goes on Pustinia for 48 hours once a month. Um and a little more than 48 hours, but around there. Am I yeah, right then, thinking that Postinia is just like scripture, a loaf of bread, a glass of water? Or like so what, what is it when you guys do this? Yeah, it's very fluid. So so when Catherine Doherty writes about Pustinia in the strictest sense, there is like um a bed, a crucifix, a Bible, bread, and water is like that's it, and maybe tea or something. Um we are um a little bit more lush at our <laughs> monastery. So um I think it depends on different people. Like guests who come on Pustinia, some of them will come to uh liturgical prayers in our chapel, um, the communal prayers. Uh some of them will join us for dinner either at the beginning or at the end, sometimes in the middle, but usually beginning or end. And the nuns do different things too. Like some of us will just pack normal meals for it. Some of us do a bread and water fast um, and coffee. I do not go without coffee for sure ever. Do you um, bring other books besides scripture? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, think... I kind of try to just see kind of as I'm going into Pustinia, just kind of figure out what the, what the Lord wants for that particular Pustinia. And sometimes I have gone with just scripture and it's been really, really good for me. And other times that is not what I have needed. I think that, um, you know, you and I many years ago had discussions about the East and the West and the spiritualities. And I mm -hmm. think the thing that the West continually does, it's its mistake, is that um, we we narrow ourselves unnecessarily or we um, like like uh I, I really think that the differences between East and West aren't as much, they aren't really about teachings, they're about emphasis, yeah. you know? And what the West will do is the West will take a valid theory of something, be it purgatory or hell or how to do a retreat even, you know, and like super direction. define it. <laughs> yeah, and super yeah. define it and act like it's the way of the Roman yeah. Catholic Church and really it's a way, Yeah, you know? To the point that like sometimes Roman Catholics don't know how to do a retreat or to do a um, a prayer that's not like public piety. That's not like a rigorous, like, hey, here's what we're doing now type activity, mm -hmm. you know, or a um, like, there's nothing wrong with the, um, the spiritual exercises by St. Ignatius, but there were many retreats before the spiritual exercises by St. Ignatius. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of them looked like Postinius. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are a lot of saints that became saints through that and not through the spiritual exercises. But then you'll meet Catholics who almost can't imagine a retreat outside of that. Yeah, you know? um, I, I absolutely agree. I do think I do think that the um, this is part of the beauty. You know, St. John Paul II talked about breathing with both lungs, meaning the East and the West. And I think this is part of the beauty of it is we do need both and we need the complementarity because at times. Um, yeah, because in the yeah, in the East we're much more uh or much more kind of like not wanting to define um and not wanting to overdefine. You know, this will be like super scandalous to some of your listeners. Like we don't have a point that we say is the point of consecration. We're like, well, it happens somewhere between the words and 
it happens somewhere between the this is my body and the calling down of the Holy Spirit. It's like somewhere in there. Um, and then people are like, well, then what do you do if the church is on fire and he hasn't finished that part? And so how do you know if it's the body of Christ or not? And it's like, well, the priest just receives reverently and God, God kind of takes care fine. of it too. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> it's like, um, there's certain things that we don't have to worry about. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, like in the East, we can sometimes like, uh, we haven't really changed our liturgy in 2000 years and that's great. Um, but, but we also like our lack of willingness to, to change and kind of, you know, we can kind of sometimes be like, Oh no, everything's fine. And we need the West to be like, okay, but guys, you need some rules. Like you have to have some, (laughs) like the West has virtues. Yes. You know what I mean? And somehow the virtues is like the West has this kind of like kick your ass type ambition or something. Like that. Like, we will evangelize the world and we will send people now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and you just see the way the Roman church like sent all the missionaries and did all this work. And, you know, the Russian Orthodox are just sitting there like. Calm down. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like if you ever go to like Israel and you see like um, the chapels that where the Orthodox will have a chapel adjacent to a Roman chapel. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you go to like Israel, if you go to Orthodox, old Orthodox churches, then go to Rome. Rome, people are shining that metal. <laughs> and like in some of the old Orthodox churches, it looks like it's a virtue to never update, never <laughs> clean it, never. And, and it's cool. It like it creates this very different sense of like there's a lot of history here. There's yeah. a lot of there's patina on everything. And mm-hmm. when you go to when you go to Rome, there's like no patina mm-hmm. because they are keeping that thing polished. I like the um one of our one of the jokes is uh how many Byzantines does it take to change a light bulb? Change. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so but but it is the problem of the Roman side that we we kind of overly identify um our faith sometimes with what is actually the faith of an era Mm. or something, you know, like, Mm. like, Oh, this is a theological opinion of, you know, that was very popular in the 19th century. And therefore it is the Catholic teaching. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, it's not. And the catechism is pretty good about not doing that. You know what I mean? It's pretty good about saying, you know, defining things in ways that that 19th century opinion could be true, Mm -hmm. but doesn't like the, the, yeah. Too much speculative theology is made, is talked about as if it's real, um, as if it's the only way, you know, in the West. Well, which is one of the really frustrating things that we experience um, at points when we encounter some very traditional uh, Roman Catholics is they, some can, can like present tradition as though um, this very traditional way of doing it, like it, it might only actually have been the past like couple hundred years, you know? And it's like, well, actually, you know, this isn't how it was done thousands of years ago. And like, I, I get really, we can get really hurt. And some of this is just like the, the underdog because like the Byzantines have been so trampled upon at different points (laughs) as being the little guys. Uh, so some of it's like that kind of complex coming out, but it can be really, frustrating when 
uh, our traditions are like sneered at or or mocked like that can happen sometimes and and i'm like you actually had this same tradition 2000 years ago you know <laughs> like like um and i'm i'm okay with with that thought or that tradition changing but like please don't just dismiss ours as being um stupid or ridiculous when actually you believed you used to believe or or act on the same thing um i, I yeah. just have a problem whenever any of these traditions are elevated so high yeah meaning like um they're like fashions that are i like i don't know how i got into my faith where like the thing i wanted to read was church fathers and desert fathers that was mm-hmm. the, my primary scripture first and then desert fathers and then some church fathers were kind of yeah. my area where i read right and you just come away with a different idea of what Catholicism is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a very valid idea. And it's the type of idea that makes Vatican II not seem shocking at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's what John Henry Newman, how he discovered the faith was he, you know, was Anglican and he starts reading the Church Fathers and he's like, eh, it's hard to try. You know? <laughs> right. And I think he's also part of this like energy that became Vatican II, which was a little bit more stripping away of things that had accumulated on top mm-hmm. of the faith, right? And the real problem is when, I'm sorry I'm over-talking, so you correct me on any opinions you have different than mine on this, but like, um, I think it's like the Pharisees, you know? It's like, in a way, a lot of traditions accumulated in Judaism on top of just the faith, mm-hmm. right? And these traditions- So they were, like, they had their eye out for the wrong thing, and they totally missed Jesus. Like, <laughs> Not only missed him, killed him. You know, I mean, like they're the ones who are the energy behind, like he's breaking these things that we value as the highest, which aren't the highest, you know, because they had misvalued them. Right. But these things also become the handle upon which you control God. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, like the Eucharist is and the the mass. Is a um, I think I, I think I'm using words correctly, is an instrument of grace, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you instrumentalize it and you start acting like you have this handle on God through the mass uh, and forcing him to do things, it won't be an instrument of much grace. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's what happens a lot with these like traditions is they become like control over the religion as opposed to that religion, which is supposed to like totally change you, devastate you, break your heart, bring you to your knees, make you completely available at God's mercy which tends to happen when you have a loaf of bread, a bottle of water, and just scripture, and no one else watching in a little room, mm-hmm. you know, but sometimes doesn't happen when you're like in the huge public piety moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is when we have this kind of individualization of, of our, our faith and our piety, um, because one of the, one of the biggest problems that I, the past the past several years I've really become more aware of. And I think this is just from living the monastic life, um, which is just very intense. The monastic life is so intense um, and, and purifying and good and beautiful and so difficult. And um, the, um, but like reading all of these fathers, the thing that the desert fathers talk about unanimously as being of the utmost importance is obedience. And to the extent that like, they often talk about disobedience as being more grave than fornication, right? Um, and 
I think that like, I just see so many seeds of disobedience in our church that are painted as being like pious acts. Um, and that are painted as like, well, but I know, like, basically it's like, I know better. Um, and, and like, you see this with, with some of the traditions, but it's like dressed up in, in, in this piety, but actually like the desert fathers would say, this is very dangerous. And I'm not just talking about like, I'm not just, I'm talking about disobedience all over the church, right? Like bishops who are disobedient, lay people who are disobedient, priests who are disobedient, religious who are disobedient, like it's all over. And, um, and the, the worry I have there is like when we, especially when the disobedience is like, but I want to, when it's like, because I'm grasping at this particular tradition or at this particular thing. And this, like this, I know better attitude is just what causes um, destruction in the church and in our souls. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, what makes it so difficult to talk about the idea you're trying to express is how like your monastery and these like spiritual directors you've had have embraced freedom. Mm -hmm. So it's like obedience is of this great importance, but it actually, but this freedom is of this great importance. Like you don't just go to the spiritual director who gives you tons of obedience, you know? Mm -hmm. And also it's the people like that pharisaical mindset. It's the, like, they were very obedient. They observed a kosher law far beyond anything, even in the scripture, mm-hmm. you know, and yet they were disobedient to Christ when they actually right. met God, you know? And so there's this miss, there's this bad, you know, it's hard to talk about this, you know, mm-hmm. it is because it's very nuanced. Um, right. It's very nuanced. And, and it's the question of what obedience is, but I think the thing that makes me nervous is I've encountered so many lay people who are like, well, I understand why you're doing that because you're a nun. And so you have to be obedient, but I'm a lay person. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like lay people are also called to obedience. Um, <laughs> and like it looks different than it does for a nun. Um, but like it's one of the evangelical councils that that everyone is called to. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I just actually I just remembered our we do it. We have an annual fundraiser every year and we put out a video for our fundraiser every year. It's like 25 minutes, usually our, our monastery. Um, and this year is the final of a three year series on poverty, chastity, and obedience. So our video this year actually, um, is on obedience, but yeah. Can we talk about monasticism in the East kind of compared to the West? Cause I, I, in sure. order to like, I, I kind of want to get this out there in case some mm-hmm. people feel drawn to what you guys are doing. Um, you know, in the West, it seems like monasticism uh, kind of got codified and solidified into like one type of thing. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's communal, it's Benedictine typically, you know. Um, but before St. Benedict became kind of the universal monasticism in the West, um, there were different forms. There were desert fathers who were hermits. There were skeets, mm-hmm. you know, people who didn't have a big communal hierarchical structure in the same way right um what is like the and i also get the sense like even in today's eastern monasticism that people who are older might become monks or nuns Mm -hmm. you know that it's not just like hey before you're 26 make the decision and join um can you talk about that like sure um i'm grateful to hear you talk about saint benedict as kind of the like this central point of western monasticism i i read a 
I read a book one time that someone gave to me because I have this self-imposed rule of always reading books that are given to me. Please no one take advantage of this. (laughs) I just, I feel like if someone actually like liked this book so much and really thought so much that I should read it, that they went through the effort of like getting it and mailing it to me. And then anyways, it's kind of terrible, but uh, I read this book that someone gave me and in the introduction um, or like first couple of chapters, uh, the author called Benedict, the father of monasticism not the father of Western monasticism, but the father of monasticism. And, and I like, was so triggered. I was like, right. what about Pacomius? What yeah, about Pacomius. Basil? What about yeah. Anthony? Like, what about all of these other, like, <laughs> um, well, let's, let's talk about that. So like, even at the Benedictine Abbey up here, they have a father Pacomius. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's like the father of communal monasticism is where yeah. I would define that. Right. Well, yeah. let's just give people so, a couple of historical things just in case. Mm-hmm. So essentially, there were many rules of monasticism, even in the West, up until mm-hmm. about Charlemagne. So Charlemagne's coming after the fall of the Roman Empire, after what we used to call the Dark Ages, which I would still like to call that. And I've had a lot of arguments with Catholics about that. <laughs> but Charlemagne comes in and is like, hey, boys, get yourself organized, get yourself on the same page. And he uh-huh. basically made St. Benedict the rule of the realm. And then when you have Cistercians, that's really just Benedictines of the strict observance. And there's these other people like Carmelites who look monastic, but they're actually friars and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So there are other types of monasticism in the West, but because of Charlemagne and making everyone become under the rule of St. Benedict, that's what makes St. Benedict so important in the West, right? Yeah. So but really like 400, hundreds of years before that, Pacomius would be the first person doing communal monasticism in Egypt is my thought. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that your understanding? Um, yeah. Um, I would say so. Um, so, so here's, um, here's the biggest difference I would say in Eastern and Western monasticism. Um, so we don't have orders. So that's a thing. So th- I shouldn't say we don't have orders. Like, Traditionally, orders haven't been a thing in the East. Orders have developed in the East, um, but um, that wouldn't have like been so from the beginning. So, um, which part of our the reason our monastery started was in large part in response to St. John Paul II's apostolic letter, Orientale Lumen, in which he called for a revitalization of authentic Eastern monasticism in the Suyuri's church. So basically in North America. Um, and that authentic monasticism of the East, um, we didn't have orders. So Benedict, um, up to the point of Benedict, what communities would do is they would they would all have a rule, a rule of life for their community. Um, Benedict did not intend for it to become an order, St. Benedict, uh, but it did, right? So people took the rule of St. Benedict and that became the Benedictine order. Uh, we we don't have that concept in the East. Like in the East, we continue to have this tradition of you each write your own rule, what we call the Tipicon, our rule of life. Um, and so, which is like way too complicated to explain to people that we're, we don't have orders and um, in a short conversation. So usually people can, in can I ask me, like sure. your monastery's like rule of life. Does mm-hmm. it evolve a lot depending on who the superior is, or is it kind of set at the beginning? No, like, no, it's like set at the beginning. It can evolve in the sense of like, we're actually making minor adjustments to some of the things right now, but like 
very minor and very like once the once the community is canonically established uh which ours was several years ago once it's canonically established then that's pretty much your rule like you can change it but um you don't make a ton of changes i kind of thought canon law was a western thing um there is an eastern code of canon law oh there is okay Uh uh-huh who's in charge of um, writing that like who knows all right so too complicated I really, I really like have always wanted to study canon law because that's kind of the sort of thing that I really love. Maybe it's my engineering brain. Um, and but the we came out with like um uh practical <laughs> there's there's a, a book that came out that was like uh a practical commentary on the Eastern Code of Canon Law. And when I told the nuns about this, I was like, guys there's this book and I want it so much. I'm not going to get it because it's like $500. But I was like, I want this book. And I told them what it was called. And I was like, there's this new practical commentary on the Eastern code of canon laws. And one of the nuns was like, the Byzantines came out with something new. And then the other one was like, the Byzantines wrote something practical. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah. So anyways, back to orders. So when people ask, you know, they like see us out in at the store or whatever. And they're like, what order are you from? And I always just respond with, um, um, we're from Christ the Bridegroom Monastery because I'm not going to answer with like, well, actually we're not an order. Um, right. cause that's ridiculous, but yeah. So, um, so people will refer to at points, the rule of St. Basil, um, which even St. Basil didn't write this like as a rule to live by. What happened was his disciples came to him and like asked him a bunch of questions and he gave them answers. And like he one of the questions, uh, one of my favorite questions that's in what we now call the rule of St. Basil. uh, One of his disciples asked, is it better to live the life of a hermit or to live the community life like the Eremitic or the Cenobitic life? And St. Basil um, was strongly in favor of the communal life because he says, if you live alone, whose feet would you wash? And um, so even in the East, within monasticism, the tradition has been like, you're typically a monk in a community for many years before becoming a hermit. So it's not, it's not pretty typical at this stage, of course, with the desert fathers, you know, they would just like off on their own right away. Um, But as it developed, it became like with most monasteries that you have an affiliation with, you become a hermit after many years of being a monk. Um, yeah, but and, do you yeah. have people contemplate joining your monastery who are like of very different ages, like maybe widows or, or is it always like kind of like young people in their twenties discerning? That is, that is definitely a tradition in the East for like widows and widowers to enter monasteries. Um, at this point, it's mostly only Orthodox monasteries that are doing that, to my knowledge. Um, our community, at least for now, um, is not taking older. We still take older vocations than most Roman communities. Like we allow people to discern up to 45, uh, which is which is much older than most Roman communities, which are like <laughs> some of them are cut off at like 25 or 30. Um, but uh the yeah i think part of that is also just like our community is so small in part because we're byzantine (laughs) um you know like our eparchy has like 
I don't know, two or 3,000 people in it, <laughs> we have, which covers 12 states. Uh, so we're like the size of a medium to large Roman parish. <laughs> um, so anyways, our community is, is so small and so new that that would just be like, I think something that we can't do at least for now. Do you know, when you were here in Kansas city, you were going to a, um, St. Luke's church. Is that right? Yes. Sure. <laughs> my, my old is, confessor is now the priest there. That place is thriving. I know. They've got a huge young adult community going there. Uh-huh. Are they Ruthenian? Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So my can, the, the priest who was my confessor when he was here in Ohio, um, was transferred there a few years ago. Uh, which was a sadness for me, but a, a great happiness for Kansas City. <laughs> well, do you have anything, like if there are young women listening to this who are curious about this, like as a, you know, I, you know, I, I believe that most people probably would enter a monastery like yours because they actually are in the Byzantine rite, you know? But it also strikes me that the approach to religious life is significantly different in the mm-hmm. East and in the West, and that there are people who might feel more drawn to the Eastern way of religious life, even if they weren't raised Byzantine, right? Mm-hmm. Aren't, you know? Uh, do you see any of that? Or is there anything you want to tell, you know, young women who might be listening who would be interested in monasticism? Sure. Um, if you're interested in monasticism and you're Roman Catholic, um, I would encourage you to be open to the forms of monasticism that are in the West. Um, but if specifically there's a draw to Eastern, you know, like Carmelites or Carthusians or whatever, but, um, are there Carthusian women or is that only men? I don't know of any, huh. I mean, there aren't that, that many Car- there's only handfuls I mean, of Carthusian yeah. men. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, or be- there's also Benedictine women. Yeah. Benedictines. Yeah. Um, and Cistercian, I think, I think, oh, there yes. are, I know of one. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so, but if you're specifically drawn to Eastern monasticism, um, that's beautiful. I will just say very directly, we have a lot of women who reach out, um, who are Roman Catholic, who, uh, are very interested and, um, especially like anytime I do a new interview on Pints with Aquinas, we always get like, you know, just tons of vocation inquiries. Um, (laughs) but what I always tell women very upfront in our very first conversation uh, who are discerning with us is um, you really have to have a love for the East and for Eastern spirituality to be in an Eastern monastery. We are in the chapel for four or five hours a day with our Byzantine liturgical prayer. Um, And (laughs) if you don't love that, then it's going to get real old real quick. And you say every psalm every day. No, we go through the cycle in a week. Yeah. And, um, but like our morning prayer is an hour and a half to two hours. You know, our evening prayer is an hour. Our, um, yeah. So for people's like at the Benedictine monastery we go to, those are more like 20 to 30 minutes, not an hour and a half. Yes. Yeah. Um, And, And they seem very prayerful. Oh, yes. That's, that's not like, a knock on the people who do 20 a, yeah. to 30 minutes of, uh, they're not rushing. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not at all. Um, and and you also have to really have a love for the Eastern spirituality um, because it's it's not just like a head thing. It very much 
affects all of the ways that we live, um, the Eastern spirituality. Uh, and my sense um, is more people would be attracted to the Eastern spirituality than to who may, but, but they but the liturgy would seem so foreign. Is that wrong? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it um, seems like maybe. Eastern spirituality yeah. would be less of a jump than actually the whole liturgical way of prayer that they would be entering. We have instituted kind of a new rule of, um, I'm happy to talk with women who are discerning at any point, um, but we don't allow women at this point because of things that we've learned from women who have entered. Um, we don't allow women to have like to enter um, until they've been regularly attending a Byzantine parish for at least a year um, to get the full liturgical cycle to really make sure that they love the Eastern spirituality and they're not just like excited by this new thing um, and and that they're not just going to... Uh, when you say yeah, spirituality, so. you mean like form of worship? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah. And form of prayer and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I mean, all the things that we were even talking about earlier of the like the overdefining versus less defining and that like there's just like if you're not going to be okay with well we just don't know the exact point of consecration then probably the east is not for you um <laughs> like <laughs> you know um or if you're not going to be okay with things starting late all the time then the east is not for you <laughs> really that's a thing you guys start late even no, we're, we're pretty we're pretty good at like starting prayers on time but um well, but, that is yeah, so culturally often. interesting. Just kind of like, I mean, like, also just from like, the West just can't help itself but be productive. Yeah. You know what you I mean? Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like <laughs> Western, it, not even just Western religion, like the Western world. Um, yes. Like yeah. that's very, it's very, and and a lot of the Western, that Western mentality, again, Western world um, is something that we battle in our monastery all the time, you know, um, and yeah, but the uh, we had a we had a priest celebrating Roman Mass for us today, and um, he was um, asking how many hosts to put out, and he's like, "Or will you count the hosts out right before Mass?" And I was like, "No, that doesn't really work because it's Byzantine time, so there's probably going to be a couple sisters who come in a minute or two late, and like, so I can't really count it ahead of time." And he, uh, yeah, so. But do you find like I mean, when you had to work with this? you know, videographer and like uh -huh. even today you scheduled me to have this podcast. Are are you running late to lots of your things or are you just like the on time Western sister at a Byzantine monastery? I'm mostly the on time one. Yeah. I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually frustrated with how it's like affected me of I find myself becoming like I'm I'm late to things a lot more often because I've started to develop this mindset of like, why be on time? They're gonna be late anyways. Um but which is yeah i don't like that that's happening in me so i'm trying to be prompt again <laughs> all right that's interesting yeah but i mean if you are the person on time then it is a lot of waste you know you better have a lot of stuff to do when you show up early you know <laughs> yeah um well thank you mother natalia anything else you want to say before we wrap it up um i don't think so i mean it's really great to see you again give my love oh. to, to audrey and laura and all the people i will and Natalia is the name of the movie or the documentary, mm -hmm. but tell us the name of your um, What God Is Not. That's the name what of your God podcast. Is not. Mm -hmm. Great. Yep. I'm also, I'll be starting um, in, I think, February, maybe. I'm starting um, to, I'm going to have like a weekly feature on Pints with Aquinas. So Weekly? How often does Matt? Like a 10 to 20 report? minute, a 10 to 20 minute thing weekly. Yeah. 
Okay, wow. Right, I don't know how often Matt records. I don't watch his videos. <laughs> I don't um, really either, but I'm kind of amazed at what he's achieved. I've watched I've watched um, two of his videos. Uh, I watched when Father Boniface was on because I love Father Boniface with all of my heart. Um, and I watched when uh, Father Michael Lachlan, my spiritual father, was on. So those are the only two that I've watched. <laughs> so anyone who's listening is going to go to the Focus Conference this year, which is in St. Louis. If you go see Matt Frad. Before he speaks, you're going to get to see a Simple House recruiting video. I mean, We're Mother Natalia is also going to the SEAT conference, I think. Oh, you are? Yeah. Great. All right. I okay. So. Well, we, uh, we're a sponsor this year, so please drop by our table, and maybe you should just hang out at our table, help us recruit. That'd be fun. Are you going to be there? I'm going to come for a day. Okay. That's my plan, anyway. Great. I haven't worked out which day yet, though. Awesome. So. Well, hopefully I'll get to see you there. Oh, thank you so much. God bless. And you're always welcome. If you got a message to please uh, write me an email and we'll get you on the podcast. Absolutely. All right. Um, thank you for listening to the Simpleton Podcast. Like, subscribe, and share. Also, check out all Mother Natalia's projects. Talk to you later. <laughs>